Exodus 13, verses 1 to 16. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast is to be found, is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought, a, brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. After the Lord brings you into the, into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised as an oath, on, an, on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In the days to come, when your son asks you, What does this mean? Say to him, With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every, every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Thank you for that. And uh, do you please keep your Bibles open or switched on, however you do it these days. Thank you so much for having me along. Uh, it's a great honour to be here. Um, it's lovely to come and visit churches and to share the scriptures with you. Uh, it's lovely to be invited back to do that as well, once you've done it before. And I think I've probably been three times, so I've probably even made that joke before, and you still tolerated me and had me back. So, Just a couple of things to tell you uh, what we're going to be looking at over today and tomorrow, uh, and to give you a bit of an orientation to the way I've set things up. Uh, you'll see in the booklets that you've got... Uh, all the passages are printed there, and I've given blank pages for notes. I tend not to give lots of bullet points and headings. That's just because uh, I'm happy for people just to take notes as a way that they feel this is the note I want to take or the thing that stands out for me. So it's not that um, something's missing there. That's just uh, the style, the way I do things. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at a block of Scripture that runs from Exodus chapter 13 to Exodus chapter 16. We're going to go through that whole part of the scripture. I wonder if um, anyone wonders why on earth we chose that bit of the Bible. Like that kind of seems a bit odd, doesn't it? When was the last time you heard a series of talks on Exodus 13 to 16? As, as recently as that. All right, well, ho hopefully this won't retread too much ground. 
What I want us to do then, uh, really, over these couple of days is, at the macro level, the big picture level, is I want us to be seeing that uh, every part of the Bible, every part of the Bible has something for us from the Lord. You know, when um, you're in Sunday school, there were like three right answers to every single question. What were those three right answers? Jesus, God, the Bible. Maybe the cross got thrown in, you know, bonus. Now, that's kind of funny, and it's kind of good in a way. You want the kids to think Jesus is the answer to everything. You want the kids to turn to the Bible. You want the cross to be central in their lives. But what about when you grow up and you go to a church where, certainly not Trinity Hills, certainly not Church in the Trinity Network, but have you ever been to a church and uh, perhaps an old church you were at, perhaps a church you visited and thought, gosh, every sermon has one of the same three applications, have you ever been there? What are the three kind of standout, predictable applications from lots of church sermons? Read your Bible, pray, go to church, yes, tell people about Jesus. This is kind of, again, fabulous things, right? These are things that you would never, ever, ever want to minimise or marginalise in the life of a Christian believer. Of course you should read your Bible, of course you should pray. Uh, of course you should tell the people about Jesus. Of course you should come to church. But this book is over a thousand pages long. And it says even more than that. It doesn't say less than that, but it says more than that. So as I say, my great hope for us uh, this couple of days is that we'll just get a taste of looking at a part of the scripture that we may not always look at and realising, ha, ah, God has more for us than just the standard bullet points that sometimes we hear. Now, in some ways, I think this will be, I'm just telling you something you already know, I'm not suggesting this will be kind of eye-opening for you uh, entirely in terms of a paradigm, but I hope it just reminds us, helps us think again, yes, it's great to read the whole Bible, to study every part of Scripture, uh, and not just to dip into bits here and there or do highlights packages or something like that. I've called the whole series... Uh, now that we are saved, now that we're saved. And that's come from the idea that uh, when you get to Exodus chapter 13, you're really looking at the first uh, parts of the story of Israel now that they're saved. They've been delivered by God, we'll talk about this in a minute, they've been saved and their story doesn't stop there. It's not that you get to Exodus chapter 12 and go, oh, that's it, that's all they needed to know. No, 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 there's a whole lot for them to learn in the scriptures, a whole lot for them to hear from God and a whole lot for us to hear as we turn to the scriptures and, uh, and learn after them. Okay, that's been big picture stuff, uh, setting some high-level things. How about I pray for us uh, and then we'll start looking together at our first chapter. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for the hope we have in him, the salvation we have in him, the truth we have in him, the peace, the joy we have in him, the forgiveness we have in him. Uh, and we thank you so much, Lord, that you have so much to say to us. We don't, uh, we're not people who uh, have to scratch around waiting for the one or two things that might come our way from you in our lives, but your word is full and big 
Uh, and that's exciting because there's so much for us to know, so much for us to hear, so many ways that we can grow as we attend to your words to us. This weekend, Heavenly Father, we pray we would attend to your words to us. We pray we would savour them. We pray that we would uh, learn them. We pray we would trust them. We pray we would live them and enact them in ways that are good for us, uh, but even more than that, in ways that bring glory to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So normally I think if you were going to look at the book of Exodus and you had just a few talks, uh, you might tackle it by doing uh, what I like to call a highlights package. You might come in at, say, chapter 1 and learn of the plight of Israel. You might then jump to uh, chapter 3 and say, oh, there's a burning bush but it doesn't burn and learn the name of the Lord. Uh, Then you might uh, jump forward to chapter 12 and see the Israelites being saved out of their slavery in the land of Egypt. And then you might jump through to perhaps uh, chapter 20 and learn the Ten Commandments. Jump through to chapter 32 and 33 and see Israel sinning after they've been saved but God re-establishing his covenant with them. And you might jump to chapter 40 and see the Lord arriving to dwell among his people. And that would be great. That would be a great way to look at the book of Exodus and get a sort of flying overview. But the problem with doing that, as I've already uh, suggested, is that when you do that, you kind of get the big highlights, but you miss so much of the detail. And if you learn the Bible like that, one problem is you are unlikely to ever go in and fill in the blanks. You're unlikely to go back and look at those bits that you didn't look. Because you might end up with, in your head thinking, oh, I know the book of Exodus. I've done the overview. What we want to do, as I've said, is come to this block, chapters 13 through to 16, and sink a bit deeper into what happens to the people of Israel immediately after they leave the promised land. Now, I take it most of you or many of you will know where we're up to in the Bible story so far. You know, Exodus is near the front of the Bible. It's the second book of the Bible. Uh, Of course, the Bible begins in Genesis, where we have God creating the world by his word making it very good. We have people rejecting God's goodness, falling into sin, and this problem then that really is faced throughout the rest of the scriptures. You know, on page three, you hit a problem, and it's not resolved till page 1003 in its fullness. The problem of sin has entered, where people reject God, and as a consequence, they suffer. As a consequence, they're enslaved, and as a consequence, they are culpable and face punishment. Then you have promises made to Abraham, promises that God will save not only Abraham but also many nations through him. You follow that through to his son Isaac who's the first expression of that promise coming true. Jacob, Jacob's sons become the 12 heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Those 12 sons, 11 of them, sell one, the youngest, Joseph into slavery because he's favoured by his father Jacob in a way they think isn't fair but it turns out that Joseph uh, gets taken to Egypt as a slave but rises to a position of extreme importance and significance and actually saves the Egyptian nation from a period of famine uh, through the revelations and dreams that God has given him and as it happens his family come down to Egypt seeking help uh, and, he, and, and reconnect with Joseph there. That's how the book of 
Genesis ends. You open the book of Exodus and there's been a shift. You've moved away from this kind of extended family, which is uh, Jacob, his 12 sons, and uh, a group of about 70 people. And the book of uh, Exodus opens with a nation in waiting. The people have multiplied massively and they fill the land of Egypt now. And the Pharaoh, who Joseph had had a good relationship with, uh, has died and there's a new Pharaoh who doesn't have the same uh, uh, favour, doesn't show the same favour towards Israel, so Israel are enslaved. And the story of the book of Exodus is really the opening uh, story of the nation of Israel. The nation is a nation born out of slavery. They start, if you like, as a nation in waiting, a nation in a foreign land. And God sends Moses, his servant. And Moses, though he feels inadequate, uh, is the one who confronts the Pharaoh and insists that the Pharaoh lets the people go. And then repeatedly the Pharaoh refuses to let the people go, despite the fact that every time he says no, that God sends a plague and his people suffer more and more. And eventually you hit uh, the 10th of these plagues and the 10th plague is the plague that will see the firstborn son die in every house in Egypt unless that house is marked out with the blood of a sacrificial lamb. The people of Israel obviously know to mark their houses out with the blood of the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. Uh, And then when the angel of death comes through Egypt, it passes over those houses. But all the firstborn in Egypt die. And as a consequence of this most horrendous plague, Pharaoh finally says, go, go, leave. And Moses leads the people out of slavery in the land uh, in the land of Egypt that's Exodus chapter 12 so the book is called Exodus and the Exodus itself the event of leaving heading out happens in Exodus chapter 12 and so when you get to Exodus chapter 12 you feel as though God's people have been saved they've been delivered this nation in waiting can now go and become the nation that they were always meant to be, always, uh, God had always planned for them to be. And we pick up the story immediately on the back of that event, that exodus, that leaving the land or heading out of the land. Now, as I say, uh, sometimes you might get to that point and think, well, the next big event is they arrive at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 uh, and... uh, God prepares them for him to appear and deliver the Ten Commandments to Moses. But actually, a few things happen on the journey uh, from that initial leaving of Egypt through to the arrival at Mount Sinai. And chapter 13, we've just heard read, is one of the first things that we find. It's the Lord God addressing Moses and giving him some instructions for what the people of Israel should do. What the people of Israel should do ongoingly, habitually, as a new ritual in their lives. And there are two things 
there are two things that they are told to do in this passage that we've just heard read out. The first thing they're told to do is to consecrate every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. So that's chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And you see the same thing when you get to the end of our passage today as well. Uh, So we come to verse uh, 15. When Pharaoh stumbling refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. So the first thing God has commanded the people to do is to set aside their firstborn. Now this is clearly an act of remembrance. It's a way of remembering what God did. It's very interesting, isn't it, that immediately after the Exodus, the first thing God says is, we're going to set up systems of remembrance. You kind of think at this point, no one's going to forget this. Like, goodness, this has just been the moment in the life of this nation. They've just been delivered out of slavery. Pharaoh's let them go after seeing all these miraculous signs and wonders. But God knows better. God knows that people do forget God knows that people quickly move on, even from monumental events. And incredible grace can be forgotten if it's not put in front of people repeatedly and they're reminded over and over. And so God is here instructing, the Lord is instructing Moses in the rituals that they will enact for remembering what has just happened. You've just been saved, let's establish a system of remembering that forever. And the consecration of the firstborn is obviously a reminder of that tenth plague. In the tenth plague, God decided that he would uh, take the firstborn of all living in the land of Egypt. They would die, except for the Israelites. They would be passed over. But now God says, in effect, they're mine now. The firstborn are mine. I decided to take the firstborn the lives of the firstborn of all people in the land of Egypt. And I didn't take your children from you. I didn't kill them, but, but they do now belong to me. And so what you need to do is to consecrate, set aside every firstborn male as someone who is set aside for the service of the Lord, uh, particularly and exclusively. Similarly with animals, they need to be set aside And uh, what we find this plays out as we move through the rest of the book of Exodus and into Leviticus uh, and beyond in the Old Testament, that this will become central to the life of the nation of Israel. Uh, What will happen is those firstborn sons who are set aside will then be substituted for one of the tribes of Israel. So what we find is that the Levites... Take the place of the firstborn sons. No longer do I need your firstborn sons because you're going to give me the tribe of Levi instead in its entirety. And the tribe of Levi will have a role among the people and their role will particularly be to be servants of the Lord and uh, working in the, um, the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle being that proto-temple that they carried around in the wilderness and then the temple when we get to Jerusalem. The, the Levites going to be the attendants of this great structure and all of its rituals and all of its ongoings. That will be their job. That will be their work. That will be their life and you will set them aside for me for that. 
Similarly with the firstborn of every animal. It will be given to the Lord. And it's given to the Lord in remembrance again of the lamb that was slain in the Passover. When the tenth plague came, the Israelites killed a lamb, put its blood over the doorposts, over the lintel, and the angel of death knew to pass over. And so this will recur throughout the history of Israel. You remember this by taking the firstborn of the animals and the firstborn of your sons will sacrifice the firstborn of your animals, remembering that it's through the blood shed of this animal that you were passed over and saved. That is going to become an institution. And it does become a massive institution. Uh, If you keep reading through the book of Exodus and you get past chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, you see that most of the back half of the book of Exodus is all to do with the design and construction of the tabernacle, the the proto-temple in the wilderness. Uh, And then Exodus chapter 40 is when the Lord arrives in that uh, tabernacle in the wilderness. Then you move through and after you get through uh, the the Pentateuch, so Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, into the book of Joshua when they move into the land and judges, and then the book of 1 and 2 Samuel... One and two kings, we see the establishment of the people in the promised land. And one of the first things, or one of the big things they want to do, is construct a permanent temple. King David has it on his heart to do this, but it's his son Solomon who builds the temple. And you have to understand that this temple is at the heart of the life of the people of Israel. Uh, In the Old Testament, the temple is in the middle of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is in the middle of Israel. Three times a year, all the people come to the temple and there are repeated sacrifices where the Levites and the priests who come from among the Levites will make sacrifices of the animals in remembrance of the deliverance that's been passed and also as a marker and a sign and a hope of God's continual forgiveness, deliverance, taking people back to himself. It's all born here, this great institution of remembrance comes out of uh, the moments immediately after leaving the land of Egypt. Now, if you are a Christian believer and you know your New Testament, you've got to be hearing lots of things ringing and and this this is echoing in what we know of the New Testament because The New Testament, of course, is the fulfilment of everything that happens in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the people of God need to be saved, not from physical slavery in a land, but from that problem back in Genesis chapter 3, from their sin. And how's that going to happen? Well, God's going to act just as God has always acted in his grace, but also through similar means and methods, but, but different as well. He's going to send a lamb to be slain again but it's not actually a lamb it's his son the lamb of God he will take away the sins of the world his blood will be shed and it won't be smeared across doorposts but it'll be ending up smeared across the wood of a cross and when people turn and look at that cross as we read in the book of Numbers they were to turn and look to the symbol that was held high for their deliverance when they turn and look at that cross God's judgment will pass over them and Jesus is at the same time that lamb who was slain and the firstborn son 
who was given to God as part of the work of his deliverance. It all points ultimately to Jesus, all fulfilled in Jesus. It all starts here. But the point to make here is that remembrance is central to the life of the people of Israel as it is to Christian believers. Let's just run with that a little. Um, What does that look like for us in our churches, in our Christian fellowships today? We want to remember what's been done. How do we do that? Well, there's a number of ways we do it. We do exactly what we're doing now. We open the scriptures, we read them, we remember all that God has done in history. We remember what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. A large part of the way that we remember what God has done is by going back to the book, the scriptures, again and again and again and again and seeing the message of God writ large there for us. But there's also some other things that I think we should be thinking about in terms of uh, lessons we can learn from the setting aside of the firstborn. Let me just take two uh, kind of lines from here, um, which are uh, extensions of uh, what we've seen here so far. Not only do we have to keep remembering Jesus, keep looking back to the cross, keep uh, in mind our deliverance and making sure that that's something that we never uh, lose a habit of doing, I think there's also something for us to think about here in terms of setting people aside to serve the Lord, consecrating people. It may not be the firstborn male, it may be a substitute, just as the Levites substituted. I don't think the birth order is the point uh, at this stage. But I do want to say that it continues to be the case that God calls people into vocational Christian service, set aside from whatever else they were going to do with their lives to serve him and his people should be proactive in finding those people who are set aside. Now I've half put on my Bible college hat here, but it's not really just about going to Bible college and doing a degree. That's all kind of a means to an end. The end is having more people who are trained in Christian ministry, who have put aside whatever it was they were going to do with their lives in order to exclusively focus on serving the Lord. Uh, I said before that when I went to university, uh, I had uh, become a Christian believer and my life was turned on its head then. Uh, prior to that, um, my plan had really been to uh, continue in my vocation, my career. I did a science degree. Uh, I went and worked at the CSIRO. I was an experimental scientist. Used to put things in test tubes. They changed colour. I wrote about it. It was very exciting. Um, but from there, I actually had a number of quite exciting um, career opportunities, I suppose. Uh, the biggest one came in 1999, uh, which was where I was offered a, a full scholarship to do a PhD at Melbourne University. Um, This was quite competitive, uh, and if you got this, it meant not only did you not have to pay fees, but you got a living allowance, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Not only that, but the the supervisor who had uh, agreed to take me on was like the guy. In the field I was in, he was the dude. He was the editor of the journal. He kind of walked into the conference room and everyone was like, he was the guy. And not only that, the project that I was offered was incredible. I did um, geology and my project was 
to run a comparison of some of the rocks that were in Antarctica with rocks in the Himalayas. So this, this project had me on a field trip to Antarctica, had me going to the Himalayas, hanging out with the guy, getting the PhD, all that sort of stuff. I had a career path and it would have been an exciting one. And I actually have a friend who went down that path and I'm still in touch with her uh, and she now lives in Greenland because she's involved with the Western Greenland Geophysical Survey and she has a blog about Greenland and it's, it's kind of cool. But this was at pretty much exactly the same time that I went to that CMS conference and the preacher, who I kind of have so much gratitude for and at the same time a little bit of grumpiness, he said, what are you doing with your life? And we realised, what are we doing? It's great to be a geologist, don't get me wrong, we need them. And uh, pray that there are many great geologists out there mapping the west of Greenland. But what happened was we realised we were going to change direction and give our lives to vocational service of the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so it was a very, very hard conversation I had to have when I went to the geology department at Melbourne Uni and said, thanks but no thanks. Uh, hard for them because they, um, they lose the whole program. That is, the funding is attached to the applicant and since the applicant's gone, they lose the project, they lose the funding, I can never set foot in that building again. Uh, so we, then we decided, my wife and I, that we would go to Bible college, we would learn theology, we would get as much ministry experience as we could, do traineeships, uh, serve in church as much as we could, so at the end of our time we would be useful in some capacity for Jesus. And uh, since then that's the direction that I've continued in. And we need to be doing this. We need to be doing this. Uh, it's not for a, don't hear me for a moment saying that Christian leaders are more special to God or more valuable to God or more saved. That's not true. But in God's economy and the way God has set up the church and, and the ministries that we have in our world, we need people who are set aside to lead and serve in them. We need people who can do that. The church rises or falls on its leadership. And if there's no leadership... Before long, there'll be no church. We need this in Adelaide desperately. Uh, the population of Adelaide is growing, as is the population across Australia. Many churches are in decline. We are about to face a crisis when so many of the faithful pastors across our city who are in their 50s and 60s retire and there is no one to replace them. There, are going to be, there already are many churches without pastors. There's going to be more unless we start consecrating people for vocational ministry at a much higher rate. That will mean for some people making a career change. It will mean saying, but I've invested so much time and energy in getting this uh, study done and in uh, going to this, um, starting at the ground floor of this organisation and getting a, a promotion. And, and it's going to mean some people saying, you know what? I'm putting that down and I'm changing direction. And we need to have the courage to do that. So I want to throw this out for you today because actually uh, in God's sovereignty, the Trinity Network is a pretty healthy network of churches and the Trinity churches are full of people who are well taught, who understand the significance of the gospel, the importance of the gospel. And I think if a significant number of those 
leaders of the next generation aren't coming out of Trinity churches, I'm not sure where they are going to come from. So I want to throw this out for uh, individuals to consider themselves, but even for you as a church to consider together. Who could we set aside? Which one of our young people could we say, you know how you're studying engineering? I don't think you should be an engineer or whatever. We need to set people aside, head them towards Christian leadership, not because God loves them more, but because we need those people to ensure that the work of the gospel is led and taken forward to the next generation. Another thing that comes out of this idea of setting aside the firstborn, you notice it says, consecrate to me every firstborn male, the firstborn of every womb among the Israelite belongs to me, whether human or animal. And we've already said that the animals were then given to God and sacrificed. Now, that does a couple of things. As I've said, it it recalls the lamb who was slain. And it points forward to the lamb who was coming. And it serves as a, a, a way that the Israelites could continually seek God's forgiveness in the interim. But the idea of the first fruits being set aside for God recurs throughout the Old Testament. And it's the idea that of all that you have from the Lord in his general grace towards you, uh, particularly in uh, the story of um, Israel in terms of your agricultural blessings, your crops, your animals, give the firstborn to the Lord. And the idea there is dependence. You give the firstborn to the Lord, not the last. Uh, That is to say, imagine you have a a small flock and you're not sure if your flock are going to produce young lambs and so you think, you know, this this is a kind of touch and go operation. Uh, But then there's a couple of lambs from a couple of the ewes and you think, oh great, we're going to have a herd. You could say, once I've built this, down the other extreme are people who react against that and say, oh, this is so uh, separated, so divorced from what it's actually meant to be pointing to, let's not do it at all. They say, you don't really need communion. If you're teaching the Bible, then uh, forget about celebrating the Lord's Supper or, you know, you can just do it kind of half-heartedly once every five years. Um, I think neither of those extremes are right. Uh, to over-ritualise something and believe that God shows people special favour purely because they've got old-fashioned rituals in their lives is a mistake. But also to say, don't worry about doing anything physical and tangible to remember the Lord Jesus. Especially when Jesus himself said to do it, as often as you, as often as you drink it, uh, that would be a mistake too. So I think this is actually a great thing for us to do. As we come to the communion table, we take the bread and we remember, here is a great reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ gave his body for me and not just gave his body for the church generally but gave it for me and I take it and I consume it and just like bread gives me energy and, and sustenance to live so the body of Jesus has given me life and I take it for me to do that and then I take the, the wine and the same thing this, uh, this cup of wine is a reminder that not only did the Lord Jesus died 2,000 years ago but he died for me and this represents his blood and I drink it because I'm, I'm drawing on that salvation and, and drawing on other metaphors from the Bible we see that his blood washes me 
It doesn't wash me on the outside, it washes me on the inside. So I take the wine and drink it and I'm, I remember that I'm washed from my sins. Now again, you can over-ritualise that and you can make that into some kind of elaborate ceremony that is built up beyond anything that's particularly useful in remembering what Jesus did, but you can do it well. And you can do it in such a way that it's a great reinforcement of the gospel that we read about in the scriptures. And I'd encourage you to do that, to really savour those times when you share the Lord's Supper. It's, by, it's not by accident that the sacraments, uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism, have always been important in the life of the church since the earliest days because they are enacted remembrances of the gospel. So that's where we come to in this first part of chapter 13. And I hope you see already there's a richness in these texts for us. We're, we're already seeing exciting things about what it means to be saved people. And, and, and now that we're saved, here's something we should do. The first thing God wants us to do as saved people, people who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for our sins and his resurrection that pioneers the way to our new life, the first thing he wants us to do is get yourself systems in place of remembering this. Get yourself systems in place of remembering this. Set aside people who will minister this truth to you as their life and vocation. Take the bread and the wine and remember the body and blood of Jesus and make this part of the rhythm of your year, part of the rhythm of your week, part of the rhythm of your life that you enact this remembrance. And this is a gift to us, of course, because as I said before, uh, sometimes we might think that those great big events in the, in the history of salvation, the Lord Jesus coming, his death, his resurrection, I think, oh, who could forget that? But God knows we could forget that. And so let's not forget that by enacting our remembrance, by making that part of our corporate life together as we continue to read and study the word and hear the story over and over again. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, in fulfilment of all that the Exodus and Passover looked forward to, and who is our one true sacrifice for sin and our hope for eternity. Uh, Lord, many of us know this and have known this for much of our lives. But we pray now you'd help us never to forget it. Never to forget it. And we pray you'd help us to uh, have well established in our lives good routines and rhythms of remembering the great gospel of salvation so that we might not just learn with our ears but with our hands and our eyes and our mouths and our whole selves. It might become not just what we learn but how we live as people who remember the Lord and his salvation. And we pray in his name. Amen.